Holy crow, here comes another episode of the Book Exchange Podcast, just in time for the holidays. John and Jude Lovell are here. We are just about to hit the the holiday season, Christmas, New Year's, all that fun stuff. And so we thought we we wanted to get at least one more in by the end of this tumultuous year 2020. So here we are with episode 19, and Jude is here with me. Jude, what's up? Merry Christmas, John. Happy holidays to all our listeners. How you doing? Doing great. Um, yeah, so just want to say really quickly, as we've said many times over the course of the year, this is the first year we've done this show, the Book of Shame podcast. So just want to extend our very sincere thanks for everyone who's come along with us on this ride in 2020. Uh, we do plan on continuing into 2021, a year that I think it's safe to say everyone is looking forward to. <laughs> after the year that we've had but um in the midst of all the craziness and and a lot of struggle and pain and difficulty um it was really just great to get this podcast rolling and you know we're we're very grateful for everyone who's taken some time to listen to our discussions and take part in them and we hope we'll we hope you all will continue to join us into 2021 so um we are as i said this is episode 19 and for today's episode, we are covering top our top fiction and nonfiction books of the year. And we're going to talk for just a minute about how we want to approach that. But, you know, we, obviously it's appropriate at, as we get to probably, this will probably be the last podcast in the calendar year 2020. So we thought we'd look back on the year in reading for us as readers, um, as your hosts of the show, and kind of, you know, highlight some choices that we thought uh, were among our favorites in ter- or most valuable in terms of what we've read um, this year. Do you want to uh, explain that a little bit more, Jude? Why don't you jump in and kind of explain to our listeners what we're going to do with this episode? Yeah, sure. So one thing that John and I do traditionally just between each other is we make a top 10 uh, best book lists of the year and we kind of share it with each other. And we've been doing that for quite a while. Um so we kind of had an idea to do a top, you know, books of the year podcast. But when we do our own personal list, we, it's understood between us, but we don't, so we're not talking about, we won't always call it the top books of, of 2020 in this case. Um, but we'll say something like the top 20, the top 10 books of the year. And what we mean by that, and we both get it, is that we share the books that, that we read this year that were kind of our favorites which does not necessarily mean that the books were published in 2020. So right. a lot of times, you know, in like media outlets, you know, you get the best books of the year and you're there talking about books that came out in the last year. We, we don't do that and we're not doing it here. So that's why we we're calling it what we're calling it because we're picking our top fiction and nonfiction reads, if you will, the books we read this year, doesn't matter when they were published as you're going to, as you're going to find out. And, I think over the years of my list, most the most of the time that my favorites are not published in the year that I'm just finishing up. So that's what this is. We're talking about the our favorite books that we read this year, today. Yeah, and uh, I'm glad you 
mention that because um, as is the the want of this show, and and as we've said from all along, you know, we tend to read very widely, and that's not just in terms of subject matter, but in terms of chronology, you know, and, and history. So we don't we don't put any rest- real restrictions on what we read in terms of uh, you know uh, you know only reading modern stuff or contemporary stuff or anything like that. As a matter of fact, we I think we both value a lot, you know, kind of learning about uh, books that came in ages came before us, you know, ages past. And so it's wide open. Anything that you read this year, whether it came out this year or recently, or, you know, it may have been some, it may be an ancient book for all that. It's it just the books that really jumped out to us this year. And, and the other, the other side of that is, as Jude mentioned, we always share a top 10 list. Um, it would be great if we had enough time and enough shows to kind of go through our top 10 lists and just highlight, you know, all 10 of what we choose. Cause we do that every year. That would take so long. We're obviously not going to be able to do that. Not in one episode. And, you know, it would take a series to do that. So, and we want to move on with other topics as 20, as the, the calendar year turns. So in order to compromise, what we're going to do is we're each going to highlight, you know, a favorite single selection from that's both fiction and nonfiction that we read this year and just take some time to discuss why we, why it, struck us and why we found it so valuable or important or entertaining or whatever word you want to use. So we're just going to focus on one choice each in two, in those two categories, fiction and nonfiction. And that's just a little taste of, you know, uh, you know, our personal uh, top 10 lists for the year, but I think it'll, it'll allow us to get, you know, a little more in depth into some books that we really, really loved. So that's, Unless you have anything else you want to add, that's that's what this episode is, and we're glad you're here and long for the ride. Well, I do want to add one thing, John, if if I may. Sure. So you're so you're right. Like we didn't, you know, we thought about maybe top five, top three, but but in the end, we thought let's just pick the, our favorites from fiction, nonfiction. That way, we'd have a little more time to discuss those titles, and we're going to be asking each other questions about you know how we feel about those books, why we chose them, and I just I do want to mention. Uh, Kind of a plug, I guess. I don't know. But if anybody's interested in my full list, I do. I put it on my my writer's website. So the website is judejosephlevel.com. And I have my full list out there that you can check out if you're interested. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, that's a that's a great list. It always is each year. And um, I, rec- I, I just second that notion. I recommend people go and check that out um, if they're curious to know uh, some of the other great books that you read this year. Um, all right, let's take a quick break. Then we'll come back and do our regular segment at the top. Talk about what we what we've been reading, you know, recently, and then we'll we'll dive into the episode. Sounds good. All right, listeners who are familiar with the format of the show know that we always like to touch on before we actually dig into our topic for the for the episode of what we've been reading lately. Um, Jude, I know that you just finished a book that you were very, very high on and you want to talk about a little bit, but I'll kick the ball over to you. Uh, what did you finish and, uh, you know, what are you diving in? Well, you can play it how you want. You can talk about what you're going to dive into later in the episode if you want, but, uh, what do you have for us? Okay. Well, um, so the book that I'm just starting, I'll take it in reverse order. The book that I'm just starting was inspired by you actually. By one of our more recent episodes where we talked about debut novels and one of yours that you brought up and this was a direct inspiration you you brought it up in the episode i didn't know it was coming and i thought 
I got to crack into that again. So um, the book is uh, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. And um, yeah, as soon as you said that in an episode, I was like, that's that's a reread. I got to do that. And I didn't realize I would do it quite so soon as I did, but it, it just felt right. But um, I got to mention, I think I mentioned it at the time, but the, the, the copy of it that I have, so I've read the book once and it's interesting. I mean, you know, I read it as a young man. I received the book. My copy of the book is a really nice everyman's library, hardcover edition, the beautiful jacket. And I, fortunately I kept it in good shape. I got it from my sister, Maria, um, our older sister who traveled to Ireland before I ever had the chance to in the early nineties. This was 1993. She bought it for me. She knew I was interested in writing. I hadn't read it. She brought it home and I, I read it like within a year because um, I remember I had the book with me. I was in the army at the time. I had the book with me in an airport coming home from military service on like holiday leave. And I had the book with me and I was reading it in an airport. But what's interesting is um, I was only 23 years old at the time, or maybe not even, uh, or no, just barely 23 years old, I guess if it was Christmas time. And, um, it, you know, it made an impression on me, but that's so that's like 27 years ago or something. Cause we just, as our listeners know, we just turned 50. So um, you brought it up again and the combination of that and remembering how I got a hold of the book, I thought, well, I'm no longer a young man. I'm a middle-aged man, you know, well into it at age 50. So I thought this could be an interesting experience. And then I, I just cracked it open and I read like the, there's a, like a very like <laughs> stuffy academic introduction. It's like 30 pages long. I know, I know what, I know you like to not read those ahead of time, um, but I always read them and it was I got about three quarters of the way through that. And I was like, I, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. <laughs> like just the guy who was the English professor from Britain or something who was introducing the book. Um, it was just I very was, stuffy. I, I think his name was J. Evans Pritchard, PhD. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Little Dead Poet Society reference for those of you who know. Anyway, um, I don't want to go on and on about this, but um, it was funny to read that introduction. I, I read it anyway, and now I've just cracked into the book. And um you know, it's, it's very interesting to read again and, and I, but I'm only just early into it. So I'd say more about it perhaps next episode, but uh, I just want to ask you very quick, John, just to, just to answer it like briefly, but when, how long ago did you actually read the book? I was wondering about that. I'm going to say 20, 20 years. I'm going to, that's a guess, but um, I okay. remember reading it in my first house and that would be right around the time that we had our, our first child. So he's 20 now. So. It's okay, yeah. So you were a relatively young man too at the time. It's just interesting book to kind of revisit, but it's also interesting that it made such an impression on you that it ended up on your debut novels list all that time later. So any anyway, um, shout out to my sister, and that's the book I'm reading now. Maybe more later on how that comes over to someone age fifty. And then I do, yeah, I do want to mention the book I just finished. I'm I'm just going to be brief about this, but I just want to give it my strongest possible recommendation. So I mentioned in one of the previous episodes, I was reading this book called Barkskins by Annie Proulx. And it's a book that is about um, sort of the logging industry. And it, it starts with these two young men coming over from France to what they called New France at the time, which is like Canada, you know, like um, north of, you know, north of our East Coast. And it follows basically them and their descendants over 300 years. Um, and it And it talks about just how they, uh, both of their descendants ended up in like the logging industry and basically deforesting the earth. And one of them, their his descendants end up 
forming this huge logging conglomerate and the other one kind of their descendants kind of go all over the place, but stay within the mining industry or the, the, um, the lumber industry. But the book, I thought the book was absolutely magnificent. It would have made my list. It just, I didn't get to it until after my list is over. So I thought it deserved some mention. Um, it's just like this sprawling tale. It's filled with details about Canada and the United States over 300 years of history with tons of characters. And I was just so, I'm really astonished by the, uh, the performance from Annie Poole. I knew she was a good writer, you know, but it's like one of these epic tales where you learn a ton about, you know, nature and the, and the, the country and, and those industries. And then uh, in one of the family lines, people start turning sort of the other way and become more of like conservationists. And in a strange way, it was kind of a companion in, in some ways to the overstory, John, because um, you learned about trees and different forests, but it was, just a completely different approach, but it's a fantastic book. And if anybody is into like historic, historical fiction, um, particularly set in like North America, I would highly recommend it. It was, it was just, it was so, so good. So I just wanted to say that. That's awesome. Um, I, I know I'll be reading it. Number one, because as we mentioned before, you gave me a copy of it. Um, and I love what I've read from Pruel. I, for some reason, when you talked about it, uh, last couple of times you and I have talked about it. I, I don't know why, but I had in my head that this was all taking place in the Pacific Northwest area, like above mm-hmm. Washington, but it, it's not right. It's more, you just said it's, it's on the Eastern side. Yeah. Very little. I mean, some of it gets into there, but also a lot of it goes to broad reaches of the whole planet. You know, there's a lot of sections that take place in Europe and uh, particularly New Zealand, Australia, um, and other places. Well, I'm curious. Does the does the action on the on the in the eastern side of Canada is that set? Do you know? Is it set in what is now like Labrador or Newfoundland or areas like that? Well, I wish I knew the geography better. Some of, some of it's Newfoundland and some of it's Nova Scotia, but um, okay. I think other areas are sort of north of like um, uh, maybe like into Ontario, like is or north of like Michigan or you know New York State or stuff like that. It's a, it's a little bit hazy to me because they were different names, you know, um, being used over the course of the the timeline and the landscape, but all over kind of the say the eastern half of Canada and like the United States. Yeah, I'm just curious because as as you know, um, my wife has a cousin who is. Uh, anthropologist who studied he's from Canada he's from Ontario in that area but he spent many many years studying and living in both Labrador which is the easternmost province in Canada I believe that isn't on the water you know so it's like when if you cross from Newfoundland or Nova Scotia you would hit Labrador I believe okay but anyway he studied uh and lived with people in both Labrador and, and Newfoundland, as you know. So I think this might be a book that would be of interest to him. I'll have to ask him if he knows about it or anything like that, because, you know, those regions are all really familiar to him and he studied the people there in the history and things like that. So anyway, that's, yeah. that sounds like an incredible book. Um, I'm glad it was such a home run for you. As for me, I'm also reading a really good book that, that I, we haven't talked about at all yet. Um, that I turned to recently and I'm, I'm in the middle of it and I'm enthralled with it. And it's, it's, uh, it's a book called nickel and dimed. 
on okay. on not getting by in America, and it's uh, it was written by a woman named Barbara. I'm going to say I'm probably mangle her name, Erin Reich. Um, and it's kind of become known as a sort of a modern classic of you know sort of uh, like socioeconomic reportage, really. In essence, mm-hmm. I this is a well-known book. I know you've heard of it. Um, it's been one of these books that I've had on my shelf for a while and I just cracked into it cause I wanted to take on something totally different. And I, number one, I thought it was an older book for some reason. I thought it was older, but it actually uh, came out in around the year 2000. She started her project in 1998. So it was more recent than I thought. Um, but this is a book where uh, in the begin in the introduction, she talks about uh, at the time, there's a lot of discussion about um, putting an end to the welfare program in the United States and a lot of debating going on about welfare and government assistance. And she was meeting with an editor of hers. Erin Reich is a journalist and a writer. She has many books. Um, and she was in a meeting with an editor and she said, you know, uh, the, the way she puts it, she said, someone, someone needs to, they were talking about how people, how people who are living close to the poverty line could actually get by without government assistance, whether that's even possible. She said someone should go out and try to, you know, basically uh, live that life, you know, uh, get minimum wage positions and see if it's possible to live, you know, to have to buy food, to cover your rent and to cover all your living necessities, you know, basically by living on minimum wage. And um, they were just talking about this. And of course the editor said, well, that should be you. And she said, uh, I, you know, I, I would have, I had in mind a much younger person to do it because she had, you know, she had grown kids, uh, had been married, but divorced, but you know, it was, uh, you get the impression she's like around our age in her fifties, maybe, mm-hmm. but he can, but he convinced her to go do it. So she spent a couple years and the book is divided into three sections where she works various jobs. First in Key West, Florida. Second, I'm in the section, second section of the book now, and she moves to Portland, Maine, and lives and works there. And then uh, the third section is set in Minneapolis, and she's from New York City. Or she worked in New York City, but she actually lived in Florida. She said the, the first place that she works is at relatively close to home, but then she decides to go somewhere where she doesn't know anybody. But basically, she takes a lot of time out of her life to go and work what we would call, you know, quote, unquote, menial jobs and see if she could get by, you know, cover her own housing, cover her own transportation, food, you know, utilities. And it's fascinating. It, it is it is really written. I'm really gripped with this book. It really uh, exposes you to a lot of a lot of things. Um, she works as a some of her jobs. She works as a waitress. She works. You know, in the backs of kitchens of restaurants, she works as cleaning houses uh, for one of these large maid, you know, like Mary Maid style conglomerates. You know, um, she works in hotel house cleaning. She works as an aide at a nursing home. And, I, you know, there's some other jobs coming up that I haven't. But she works at very, very, you know, low, low paying, grueling jobs. And she describes how. She goes into it, what she expects and how the reality is much different. And she, you know, finds you know, trailer homes and ho- hotel rooms to rent for lodgings. She she uh, buys what she calls rent a wrecks, you know, basically wrecked cars and, and, and gets around that way. 
And it's just a very, it's, it's gripping, but it's also, she writes with a lot of bracing honesty, you know, wit and humor um, and compassion. Um, but there's a toughness to the prose as well. And it's a, it really just makes you think about, I mean, we've all, especially this year, we've been talking about, you know, uh, people who do the jobs that we tend to take for granted and what their lives are like. And a lot of these people, you know, many people just kind of look past them. The people who clean up your table after you've eaten at a restaurant, the people who clean the hotel room after you've lived in it, whatever it may be, we tend to just kind of look right through these people. So I'm finding it to be a really gripping book, but also as we talked about before on this podcast, you know, just a, just a really uh, important book when it comes to like, empathy and empathizing with people who are struggling to get by working very difficult, backbreaking menial jobs. And she really, she really goes all in. And I, I really admire the commitment that she made in this book. And I also admire her honesty. She, she talks, you know, very openly about how she, you know, cheats a little bit. And sometimes she, it's so difficult that she kind of like falls back on resources that she has in her life. And she very open about, I know, you know, people in this position, wouldn't have resources that I have, you know? Um, and, and she kind of, you know, describes what that's like. So it really, it's a really interesting book and I'm absolutely loving it. I'm just gripped by it. So. Uh, that's a great one. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know you were reading that. Yeah. I, I just picked it up and I'm about halfway through already. It's about 300 pages, but it just whizzes by and it's, it's, it's fascinating. I'm just finding it fascinating. So. That's a great one. Another high recommendation. So that's what we've been reading. Um, and I hope you all out there have been reading some good stuff. Now we're going to take a quick break and we're going to get, we're going to get into the, to the meat of the topic here. All right. All right, June. So I don't. I don't think we really need to set this up anymore. You and I have both selected a, uh, a both a fiction and a nonfiction title um, that we wanted to discuss a little bit in depth. We're going to start with you, and we decided that you know the uh, each of us can choose which which category we'd like to discuss first. So unless you have anything you want to throw in it, off the bat here in terms of ground rules or anything like that, I'm gonna. I'm going to go ahead and ask you what which of your choices that you want to kick around first, and then maybe you can give us a brief, you know, description of it. Yeah, well, uh, just one thing. Like, so I'm gonna, I'm going to give a quick description, and then we decided we were going to ask each other questions. So then, are you going to ask me something, or should I just go continue to talk about it? No, I'll ask you something after you after you you know name what you've chosen and describe it a little bit. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to start with nonfiction. Okay. And my, uh, and so my favorite nonfiction book of the year, um, is called the swerve and it's written by a Harvard professor named Stephen Greenblatt. And, uh, John, help me out here for a second. Cause I'm t for some reason, I'm completely blanking. I, I, th I feel like we talked about this a little bit. I can't a uh, book already, but I can't remember which episode that was. Do you remember when we talked about this? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think I, it, it's not that important, but I, I was trying to remember if I was going to 
repeat myself a lot. I feel like I gave a brief description of what it was about in another podcast. It might have been during the birthday one because you had given it to me as a birthday selection or maybe the one directly after that. But I think we might have touched on it uh, in our 50th birthday episode, a couple episodes back. Okay, so I'm just going to give a brief description of what it is then, and then we'll just get into talking about it a little more. Uh, but uh, but definitely for me, this was not ambiguous on the nonfiction side. It was a little tougher on fiction. Not on the nonfiction side, you know, and I, I read a little bit less nonfiction than you do, so maybe it was an easier choice. But this book for me stood out well above the other nonfiction titles I read this year, regardless of the, you know, the broad variety of subject matter um, that, you know, is included under the huge umbrella of nonfiction. Um, but anyway, uh, this word was written by Stephen Greenblatt. He's a Harvard professor. I'm not sure of what, you know, I don't remember now, but like, you know, arts and humanities or something like that. Um, prior to the, this book came out about a decade ago, it came out in 2010, I believe, um, or it might've been 2011, but just about 10 years ago. Prior to that, he was most famous for a book that I know you had read and really, really liked a lot. I think it made your best books of the year. Yeah. Last year or the year before, um, it's called Will in the World, and it was about a, a study about William Shakespeare, kind of an autobiographical, or sorry, a biographical study of his work. But I think it was more, if you correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was more about kind of how he, less of a straight up, auto, straight up biography and more about how sort of um, his way of expressing himself and the, the phenomenon of his work kind of came, happened in the world. Am I putting, am I putting that right? Yeah, you, yeah, you are. It's basically, it's kind of to put it kind of in layman's terms, you know, how, how did he manage to do what he did and what was the cultural background? And, you know, it was about his creative process and his thought and what went into creating, you know, so many masterpieces. So yeah, you, you got the, you got the fo- emphasis, right? Okay. So the swerve, um, came later and was obviously the product of a lot of work and research. Um, but he already had quite a reputation for Will in the World and other works. And the swerve is not easy to describe in like a little thumbnail sketch, but I'll give it a go. Mm. So it's a book that uh, basically discusses at a certain length um, one of history's most sort of uh, consequential happy accidents um, that happened. And it's about, um, so it's set kind of, or it's related to two time periods. One is the first century and one is the 15th century. So what I mean by that is it's a, it's about how a papal administrator, somebody who was working uh, for the papacy uh, during some of its most corrupt, um, <laughs> corrupt uh, history in the 15th century. So this would be like the 1400, 1400s. Um, there was this guy who was working as kind of a papal secretary, which basically meant that he like copied documents and was like sort of an administrator for the pap- for the Pope back in that time period. In his like spare time, one of the things he liked to do was he was a book hunter and he had other friends that were kind of into this as well. Kind of a little bit like, you know, probably not to- too far off from what you and I would have been like back in that time period. Right. But, you know, so he was a guy who searched for sort of obscure books, basically. But in that time period, you know, you didn't go to your Barnes and Noble and look for something odd on the shelf or more correctly, like a mom and pop used bookstore. Right. So you had to travel around like Europe and the world and find these libraries. And most of them were in monasteries, you know, and, and some of them were obscure monasteries. 
And this book is about how he was in a very obscure monastery in the mountains in Germany. Um, he was an Italian man, but he was in Germany and he discovered a manuscript of a poem from the first century written by somebody named Lucretius. And it was one, it turned out to be one of the few remaining copies of a poem called uh, De Rerum Natura, which translates into On the Nature of Things. And this poem, um, which had been written in the first century, had sort of fallen into, fallen out of history, basically. But it was a huge, like, book-length verse manuscript that basically challenged all of the, um, almost all of the things that were held to be true in science and religion at the time. Like, you know, um, it, it, it advanced a whole series of propositions that flew in the face of what people believed or what they had been taught by Christianity or, you know, governments at the time. And one of the mm -hmm. main things was it floated the idea that we, we were all made up of these tiny particles, which seemed absolutely preposterous and, and, and like sort of um, sacrilegious at the time. Turned out to be true. He was talking about atoms. But there were way more, uh, a, a, long, a, a very long list of other things that were challenged in this poem by this but, brain. Yeah, like, right, like, like the fact that, you know, there, there actually is no God and we're just here basically by chance. I mean, he didn't, he didn't say it exactly that way, but that's essentially what he was saying, which, as you say, way, way before, you know, that was actually articulated. Right. And, and uh, when, when we die, nothing happens. That's just, that's the end of us. Yeah. Things of that nature, you know, major like sort of philosophical or existential points that were all held, commonly held to be, you know, a certain way and both in the first century and in the 14th century. But this guy kind of, you know, sort of one by one rebuked a whole long list of them in a very poetic and artistic and expressive manner. So the book, The Swerve, is about how this guy discovered this manuscript and basically got it single-handedly brought it back into circulation. And um, it caught fire again and basically changed the course of the entire history of our world, you know, by challenging major ideas. And the book kind of explains all of that. You know, it, it talks about the person who found it, it talks about how he found it, and then it talks about how exactly it caught fire and changed the rest of the world. And it's just an utterly fascinating um, story with many many facets and many different elements that was just gripping and it's all done in kind of a manageable space of like around 300 pages. So I, I thought the book was magnificent. I, it's not the kind of book I normally am drawn to John, as you know, I, I was researching it for you because I knew of, I knew of, of its existence. I didn't really know, you know, all the, the elements that were involved and, you know, how much consequence there was to what happened in this book. But the book does a magnificent job of breaking all that stuff down. And I, I got pulled into it immediately. And I knew kind of within 100 pages, I was like, this is this is heads and tails above any nonfiction book I read this year. This is easily going on my list. So that's my choice for the best nonfiction book of the year. Um, what do you got? Yeah. So, as we as you said before, so Jude was so he said he was looking into this book to give to me as a gift, and he was so he, he decided to you know check it out himself, and he was so pulled into it. Um, and then he did give it to me um, for our birthday this year, and then I was so enthralled with it that I read it. So we've both read this book in the last year, I would say. So it's it's relatively fresh in our minds, and I had a 
I, I, I too was very gripped by this book. So, but my question for you is going to, is going to put you on the spot a little bit, um, but I think in a way that you'll be happy to willing to take on. So, you know, you've described it. It's, it's part of the list that you mentioned on your website. You know, this is one of your top 10 books of the year, your favorite nonfiction book of the year. And you've said to me orally, you know, verbally many times that this is one, not just one of the, uh, you know, uh, most interesting nonfiction books that, that you've read this year. You, you've described it as one of the most thought provoking books that you've ever read. So right. I want to put you on the spot a little bit and, and, and dig into that in terms of our discussion. So um, why I'd like you to try speculate. Why, why do you think it was so, well, first of all, what, what are some of the thoughts that, that this book provoked? And I, I know that's a huge question, um, but why do you think it spoke to you so much as it did? And why do you think it, you know, hit you at this particular time and just kind of burrowed under your skin? What was it about it that really struck a chord with you? Is it, was it just the fact that it, that it, you know, challenged some of your own beliefs or did it have anything to do with, you know, the moment we're living through right now? Why do you think it was so gripping and enthralling to you in a way that, you know, not a lot of nonfiction books maybe get to that level. Okay. Well, I can answer that, but I may, I may answer it in a less than satisfying manner. <laughs> and that's because of, that's not because of my uh, intellectual capability, although I'm not sure it's up for describing talking at length about everything covered in this book. It's more due to my faulty memory <laughs> because I, I don't remember all the points that were brought up, brought up in the poem um, that, yeah. it, you know, things that were challenged that we believe or hold to be true. You know, some of them were very, were of the nature that, you know, we, we already know well by now that science disproved it a long time ago. Other things were things like, you know, like we said before, when we die, there's nothing left and we simply vanish and, you know, that's it. And, you know, I don't believe that as a, a Catholic and a Christian person. But so what I want to say, because I'm not going to remember all the specific points and all the specific thoughts I had, but I do remember why I felt the book was so thought provoking. And I've given that some thought because and I think it's a combination of what's in the poem, but also the work that I really want to commend Stephen Greenblatt, the work that he did on the, the whole book. There's a there's a lot of facets to what he did in this book that I found admirable but to answer specifically with respect to your question though so there's this section in the middle he kind of holds off from saying what's in the poem for a while I, I thought he had great command over the his own performance as a writer and historian throughout the entire book so yeah. part of it is just he builds up this tension towards what's that you're like what is in this poem that's so momentous right and yep. so, but he spends the first part of the book giving you background on the guy that found it. Uh, I forget how you say his name, but it's like an Italian guy from, uh, I think he was from Florence, Italy. And what he was like and how he was sort of working in the papacy, but he wasn't, you know, he was kind of pretty shady guy himself, as was the Pope. And, you know, he was just doing what everybody else was doing, trying to, you know, he had an education and trying to get the kind of job that would be open to somebody with his skills. And that was like sort of an arresting portrait of him. But then um, at the very beginning of the book, it just sort of gives you a cinematic kind of description of him 
riding horseback through the mountains and finding this manuscript. But anyway, it holds back for a while as to what's actually in the poem. But then when you arrive in the middle of the book, there's this what I thought was an incredibly engrossing section where Greenblatt basically says, let's lay out what's in this poem and what it and what sort of challenges it presented to society at the time. And then it goes on. And then I remember very specifically, he was like, this is only some of the challenges that this Lucretius's work posed to kind of modern understanding, you know? Yeah. And, and then there's like, but there's like 30 something pages of like these bullet points where he explains each point. And it was basically like things like, you know, man, man no longer exists after his physical death. And then it would explain that for a while. Then it said, or, you know, all human, all matter on this earth is, is made up of tiny little particles that are constantly in motion. And it would explain that for a while. And um, like I said, unfortunately, I can't remember all those points, but it was just in the way that the points were presented and how Greenblatt kind of explained in a very functional and uh, kind of smooth matter manner um, what each point was saying. And you kind of, as you read through them, you kind of got the sense that it was kind of just almost everything under the sun was being considered and looked at and challenged by Lucretius way back in this first century. And so when I say it was one of the most thought provoking books I ever read, that's definitely true. Um, I can't remember all my specific thoughts, <laughs> but it was just the way they were like, it kind of just systematically went through one point after another and the, the smoothness and sort of bluntness and sort of powerful way that Greenblatt wrote about each, each of these items and exactly explained exactly what Lucretius was saying about them sort of made me feel like you said, challenged on every point, even points that I, you know, hold to be, um, I sort of hold an opposite position from what Lucretius was saying. Um, but it was just something about the way it was all put together that um, just made everyone kind of made me think about that particular point. And I was just impressed by both Lucretius's vision, obviously, because it's impossible not to be impressed by that, but also it was Greenblatt's way of laying it all out. And I think I said to you at the time, the only thing I didn't like was after a while, it sort of, I thought that Greenblatt, I don't know Greenblatt and I don't know where he's coming from, but it, I got the impression that he's sort of not really a believer, a Christian believer. And it seemed to me like there was a hint of kind of gleefulness after a while with, with which he was laying out how Lucretius kind of picked apart everything, you know, and took yeah. down the whole Roman church, you know, and, and after a while I thought, well, he's having a lot of fun with this, <laughs> you know, and maybe he was, but I can't say too much about that. I don't know Greenblatt. I don't know what he believes, you know, but so you know, it was just kind of the part of it was, what Lucretius himself and what he was saying. And part of it was the, um, what I thought was the excellence of the way Greenblatt laid it all out for us. If that makes any sense, I don't know. It, it very much makes sense. And I think, you know, this is, let me, I have a number of things to say in response to that. One is just to reassure you, uh, I'm on, I'm on the same page with you here that what I'm going to talk about my nonfiction choice, I'm going to have exactly the same problem. It was a very dense, you know, uh, complex argument laid out across several hundred pages. I'm no, there's no way I'm going to remember everything 
about the book and everything that kind of enthralled me about the book. So I'll just, I'm going to, I'm in exactly the same position. I understand that it's very hard to get into specifics and in just a kind of a brief discussion of a book like this or the yeah, one that I'm and, I, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I agree with that. And I just wanted to say that, um, and I, I actually thought about that beforehand, but I thought, well, you know, I think I'll fall short there, but I know why I like the book. <laughs> I can say why I like the book. So hopefully you feel the same way. Yeah, I do. And um, I'm going to I'm definitely throwing a curveball at you now, but I'm, we're going to we're going to have an, uh, an on air production discussion here. OK, <laughs> awesome. Because I, I read this book and I would like to talk about it a little bit more. I'm kind of wondering, and, and this is literally <laughs> this is, you know, live, folks. So we reserve the right to do this. I'm wondering whether we should maybe break this episode into two parts and discuss the nonfiction topics, nonfiction selections today and then cut it off and then maybe we can come back and report record a second part because i have a feeling you know talking more about this book talking about my first selection which is also going to be nonfiction, it's just going to be it could either be a really long show or we could divide it into two parts i don't know what do you think uh, i'm i'm into either one like we can we can discuss just the nonfiction today you know maybe it'd be a, a slightly shorter than the other ones uh, i don't care i mean it's our show we can do what we want so um, if you if you feel motivated by this discussion, and I do have some questions for you on your nonfiction choice, let's do it. What the hell? That's an easy yeah. tease for the next one. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so, because I don't want to, you know, often peek behind the curtain, you know, when we're talking about this stuff, we have other points we want to make, but you're constantly looking at the clock and, you know, you feel like I don't I kind of don't want to feel that I want to I want to, you know, make sure we, we get a good discussion going about these books and. To have four of them, I just, we know the way we are. That's going to take a long time. I'm not even sure I had the time, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to do all four of them. So why don't we just, let's let's just make an audible, on-air audible here. We'll cover the nonfiction titles in, in part one of this discussion, and then we'll come back with a part two, and we'll decide when we want to do that. All right, uh, let's do it. So a lot of things can, first of all, I have, because you gave me the book and I read it recently, you know, I have the book in front of me. I have the section that you're talking about in front of me, which begins on page 185. And it goes for about, like you said, it goes for about 20, 25 pages. And I, I number one, I'm just going to, I'm just going to mention a few of the bullet points that he lays out just to give, um, you know, listeners a flavor of some of the content that's in this incredible poem written in the first century. Do you mind if I do that? No, I mean, we got the time. <laughs> so as, as Jude was saying, you know, I, he, he begins in this section, he says, here's a brief list by no means exhaustive of the elements that constituted the Lucretian challenge. So that's the challenge that he lays out again in the first century that is going to sound so modern, incredibly modern um, to listeners now. But some of the points that he makes in, in this long epic poem Everything is made of invisible, part invisible particles, the elementary particles of matter, quote, the seeds of things are eternal. Um, all particles are in motion in an infinite void. The universe has no creator or designer. Everything comes into being as a result of a swerve. And a swerve is, you know, uh, defined as, and this is, I think there's a quote from Lucretius, an absolutely unpredictable at absolutely unpredictable times and places, they deflect slightly from their straight course to a degree that could be described as no more than a shift of movement. 
So he's talking about kind of random movements that may alter the course of things, which is interesting. Yeah, good point. Yeah. The swerve is the source of free will. Gosh, that's a loaded one. So, you know, uh, maybe free will is an illusion, but, you know, things evolve because of just random changes that happen in the universe, you know? Right. It's um, a random universe. That's kind of like a, 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 you know, short description of a lot of what's in the poem. Yeah. The universe was not created for or about humans. Um, humans are not unique. The soul dies. There is no afterlife. Death is nothing to us. All organized religions are superstitious delusions. How about right. this one? Religions are invariably cruel. Yeah, and that is that is definitely a, a notion that has much purchase nowadays. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what it is. It's inherently cruel. Mm-hmm. When you um, posit a truth claim, you're being uh, it's it's almost cruel or evil to do that. Um, there are no angels, demons, or ghosts. The highest goal of human life is the enhancement of pleasure and the reduction of pain. So, you know, it goes on from there. But th- these are all um, arguments or points that are made in this first century poem, and they're made in this kind of epic poem style. And, and Greenblatt, as you said, you know, he makes no... I'm picking up on the point you made that he maybe has a little bit of of glee or is just kind of enjoying the takedown, you know, aspect of this. I think he does, but I think it's more than that because he, he makes a point to say he was, once he learned about this story and actually went and read the poem that had been rediscovered, he was struck by two things. One was that it articulated his own worldview in such a way that he never would have expected from a first century author. He found himself agreeing with almost everything in it. So that was, He's, he, he talks about the, how amazed he was by that. But the second aspect of it, you know, because you mentioned Greenblatt was a, is a professor of humanities at Harvard, and he wrote this incredible book about Shakespeare's creative process and his writing. He clearly and evidently, you know, appreciates beautiful writing, creativity, artistry. And so the poem itself, the, the beauty of the poem itself also spoke to him on an emotional level in a very profound way so he makes no secret of both of those things his admiration for the poem as a poem but then also how it articulated a worldview that was almost identical to his own yet it comes to us from the first century so for him you know it was this was a fascinating investigation but also very personal because it, it obviously spoke to him in a very you know meaningful way so what I'm saying is I, I think you do pick up on some of, of what you're talking about. And I picked up on it too, how he sort of relishes in the way that the, um, you know, the poem critiques the church and, and, you know, some of the mistakes the church made in trying to suppress things, but it, it does, I think it does go a little bit deeper than that in terms of his own fascination and, and appreciation for the work of Lucretius, you know? Yeah. Well, that's what I was trying to say, although you said a lot better, but uh, like, um, you know, I just didn't, I just don't know enough about where Stephen Goldblatt himself is coming from. And I don't want to dismiss his, uh, you know, his efforts in the book is just kind of like, oh man, you know, what a great body slam, 
you know, I mean, obviously yeah. he, he has a lot of credentials and he was coming at it from a lot of different directions. I did, you know, it bothered me a little bit. I did detect kind of a note of, you know, I don't know what it is. I mean, Glee was the only word I could think of, but um, at the same time, you know, like I was saying, like there was something in the way that he just kind of laid all these things out as, as, you know, as laid out by Lucretius, he wasn't, you know, it's not his materials, Lucretius's material, but you know, there, the, as you go through that list, there's this kind of cumulative effect on you as a reader. And you, and you realize that it's just kind of, you know, it's taking points one by one. And I found it just cause you know, I don't know what better word I can use other than like, you know, if my personal belief system was like a tree, this book was like somebody kind of shaking it, you know, <laughs> and just seeing yeah. if it was like still in the ground, you know, and I just, I haven't had that experience a lot in, in, in books. And I thought it was powerful, you know, um, but there's more than, but there's more that I would want to say about the, the book other than just what's in the poem, but, uh, that might be better held off for now. But anyway, um, uh, go ahead. Or are you finished with the points that you were making? Well, I, I was just going to say, uh, you know, I had a very similar experience reading the book that as to what you just described. Um, uh, I found it, well, the, the book is interesting, right? Because we should say, I mean, you kind of touched on this, but it's like this weird hybrid of like Indiana Jones or Dan Brown style, like mystery story, right? Where this, where this um, obscure figure discovers this, you know, document that has been hidden for centuries and it ends up like really, you know, causing a stir, you know, there's this whole kind of investigative part of it you know, uncovering the mystery uh, that feels like Indiana Jones, you know, right. and then, but it's also combined with, you know, uh, musings on things like theology and philosophy and, and the worldview that's articulated through the poem and Greenblatt dives into that and why it's important, why it's striking to modern ears. Um, and his, his, his sort of claim in the subtitle, you know, the subtitle, the book's called the swerve, how the world became modern. You know, so yeah. his, his thesis, which I it, I found to be almost a little bit hyperbolic, but, you know, is that the discovery, the rediscovery of this poem set in motion a series of events that kind of led to all of modernity, you know, which is a little bit, I mean, that's sort of, you know, that's uh, might be hyperbole there. I don't think he's saying that necessarily that the poem is the only thing that kicked off the whole modern era, but he, he seems to be drawing a link between, I mean, you have to remember too, that this discovery was a hundred years before the great upheaval of the uh, reformation. Yeah. Well, and I, and, yeah. He draws that out and, you know, the reformation has ties to modernity as well. Not, it's not just the reformation was about more than upheaval in theological circles. You know, it led and this has been unpacked by, many writers and authors and thinkers over the years, but, you know, that you could draw a direct line to, you know, uh, the Industrial Revolution and then from there on to, you know, uh, uh, modern times, you know. So um, when this was rediscovered, that's important, you know, that this kind of like was discovered at that moment when, as you said, there was so much corruption in the church that later would, would uh, literally, you know, uh, give birth to the, reformation and everything that followed after that um yeah and yeah and you brought up 
you brought up what I was going to say. I just said maybe I'll hold it off to later, but you kind of brought it up. Um, a point I wanted to make to listeners was like, you know, and I, I, you know, your, your nonfiction reading helps you more here because you can say these things a little better than I can. But like, because <laughs> uh, you, you, you've done a pretty good job of explaining. Um, but I wanted to say like to, to people, you know, who may contemplate whether they want to read this book or not. So you have this whole middle section that describes this poem from the first century. It's like a big, huge, long work of verse from the first century about like really deep existential stuff. And you think like, you know, so a certain kind of reader might be like, you know, you know, like, no, no thanks. Yeah. You know, like, no, th- but I wanted to mention specifically like the, what you were starting to say a little earlier, like part of what I admire about this book is the entire performance. And it is this strange hybrid. So you get, you get kind of a, you get the whole biography of the guy that made the discovery up front, which was kind of fascinating. It was like a really gripping, a little mini gripping biographical work. And then you get this whole section in the middle about the poem itself, which is what draws out of you all these thoughts about these deep questions. And it's done in a, an efficient, this whole book is like 300 pages, you know? Um, And it's like kind of done in a manner that really makes you think about it as we're saying. And then after that, it goes into um, which may be the most um, debatable portion of the book. What you're talking about is that it tries to explain now it's told you what's in the poem It's told you who found it. And it's described kind of all the conditions of what the Vatican was like and all that kind of stuff. But in the last third of the book, it, it tries to explain to you exactly how this discovery of this one manuscript was like somebody kicking a little pebble at the top of the mountain that started all that stuff that you were just talking about, you know, like, like then he does kind of make the case that it sort of began what led to the reformation, which changed the entire course of history. And, and I'm with you. I think it's like, you know, you're not going to do in a 300 page book. You're going to explain, you know, for based on this one event, all of modernity was changed or created or just discovered, you know, but I also think that too, in a way is part of the brilliance of the book because you know, like the subtitle is like marketing, you know, it's like sure. how, yeah. uh, you know, and I think there's kind of brilliant there, like, you know, how the world became modern. You like grab it off the shelf and you say, wait a minute, like this relatively slim volume is going to tell me how the world became modern, you know, and you're right. I think it is a little bit of a stretch, but I was impressed the way the book does as good a job as possible to kind of float this case and sell it as much as you probably can sell it and you've done a lot more reading about the history of you know like modernity and the reformation than somebody like me has and you're probably right it probably you know probably can't be done but i like something about the audacity of just trying to do that in this one volume and it was gripping it was like a dan brown book half the time and i thought well i just i just haven't read another nonfiction book that was like that it took on so much and it like, and it was just kind of, you know, I blew through it, you know? Yeah, no, you're right. And that is, like you said, mentioning why it might be worth reading. That's one of the things that really make it unique and worth reading because it, it, it does. It feels like a thriller at times and kind of a page turner. And it's also a work of history. And it's also, you know, fascinating, uh, you know, portrait of a, a middle, middle-aged, you know, scholar who works, he literally worked, you know, in the inner sanctum of the Vatican, but not really a believer, but, you know, he was kind of an administrator there. So he's got like a, you know, 
front row seat to what's going on inside the Vatican, which is going to be interesting for a lot of people. You know? yeah. um, and also, uh, but also, you know, a, a work that takes on things like philosophy and theology, you know. So, and Greenblatt, again, having read his, bio, his quote unquote biography of Shakespeare, which was one of the most unique biographical works I've ever read, because again, he doesn't, it's not just a straight chronology or this is what happened in his life. Then he did this, then he did that, but it attempts to dive in to his creative process and how he was able to write these masterpieces. And so Greenblatt, you know, he's got that kind of talent and that kind of mind to be able to, this is not the first time I've, I've read a book from him that kind of, uh, you know, unpack something in a very unique and original way. So, yeah, like, and you know, in, in, in that book, he tried, he tried, he tapped in, he not only tried to explain, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but like how he wrote these, these plays and, and verses that have, you know, been considered like the top of the form for so many years, but also sustained it. Like who gets in like a, who taps a vein, you know, like of like an incredible, like artistic performance and then stays there for like, you know, 20 or 30 years, you know? Oh, right. Exactly. And then his work has been, you know, uh, you know, constantly performed and praised ever since. Yeah. You know, how does that ha- how does that happen? It's almost unique in the history of literature, you know? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, who does that? You know, nobody. Yeah. So, you know, we could go on and on for the rest of the episode about this book. I think we should probably break it off there. It's a fascinating book. It's a great choice. Um, I loved it. And uh, there's just a ton to it, a ton to unpack. And uh, unfortunately, with, as we, you know, segue onto what my choice is for nonfiction, it's not going to get any easier to unpack. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, it doesn't seem like it from what I've found out. Yeah, no, it isn't. But uh, let's take a quick break again. And um, if you don't mind, and then we'll, we'll transition to that one. All right, let's break. Okay, back now. So this is John, and um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention the book that I chose for my uh, favorite uh, nonfiction read of the year. This is a book by um, a Brit named Douglas Murray. It's called The Madness of Crowds, um, and the subtitle is Gender, Race, and Identity. And man, this is talk about a book that presses hot buttons. This is this is. <laughs> 300 pages and I can't imagine any book that, you know, pressing more hot buttons at once than this one, than this one does right now. And that's one of the reasons why it's one of the most interesting books that I read this year for sure. And uh, indeed, certainly uh, it's not short on controversy. That's for sure. Uh, Gosh, but I have the same problem, you know, trying to like synopsize what this book covers and what it's about, you know, briefly is really difficult. (laughs) But it's uh, essentially uh, Murray has a has a philosophy background and an academic background, um, as well as um, a journalistic background. I didn't know much about him at all or anything, really. 
when I um, heard about this book, but there was a lot of talk about it when it first came out. And uh, what I heard about it intrigued me enough to read it. And I'm really glad I read it uh, because it's, I, I think this is, uh, man, I, this is a book that really speaks to our moment in a way that really resonated with me, but uh, certainly going to be controversial because these times are fraught with controversy. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is basically a you know, book-length essay or argument um, that tries to look at our current moment and kind of the mania that uh, swirls around these three very important you know, categories, if you want to use that word. Uh, in our culture, um, that of gender issues, racial issues, and identity issues, or identity politics, and um, it, 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 and and the, the title being the madness of crowds, you know, it posits that uh, there's this there's an there's a great movement that's been going on for the last several decades, still going on now, um, where kind of all of our, you know, collective or society's thoughts about, you know, gender, about race and about our own identities, both in our, you know, as men and women and as, you know, what our race is or color is or anything like that is all just kind of in the midst of this massive redefinition, you know, to put it in, I'm not sure how else to put it. And his basic point, the title purposely evokes works like Elias Canetti's Crowds and Power, um, which is a book by a Nobel Prize winner from decades ago that examined how, I mean, to put it in very, very simple terms, people go with the flow. And when there's a, a massive movement in ideology or politics, and many, most people, people have a tendency to just be caught up in it, in it and just to be kind of carried by it, by that tide. Um, and also it purposely kind of cheekily evokes uh, Thomas Hardy's Far From the Matting Crowd. Um, but what he's getting at is that there's this massive movement going on in Western society to sort of redefine essential things, um, to put it simply. And he's looking at why, why, why are we all sort of being carried along or not? When I say we all, that's a very, you know, it's dangerous to kind of generalize, but I mean, things like, you know, today's corporations or, uh, academia or the churches even to some degree, you know, kind of be fall, seem to be falling in line with the, this ever evolving ideology um, that when it comes to, you know, what is the meaning of race? What is the meaning of gender? What is the meaning of male and female? And I, I know you kind of, you know what I'm talking about, but Murray looks at all these different, these different areas and, I think it's very interesting because he kind of posits early, early on in the book. He said, when you look at the younger generation specifically, because of the secularization of our time, you know, then, then we just talked about this in the previous segment, you know, uh, the receding of the authority of li- of religion, for example, um, mm-hmm. in our, um, younger generations. And it's not a new idea by any, you know, Pascal talked about this, you know, centuries ago, but, you know, they, they're left with this big hole. And Murray kind of, you know, uh, hypothesizes that that hole is being filled by this movement, this desire to kind of, you know, redefine everything in our own terms and the autonomy of the self. For example, like when you look at, uh, you know, it used to be, it used to be, you know, just 
indisputable that there are two genders, male and female. And now that's that something as, as fundamental as that is up for redefinition and is being sort of redefined before our very eyes. And according to essentially people's whims, you know, or, or what people's preferences are. Um, so he's kind of looking at that whole phenomenon. Why, why is this happening? How, how did we get to this point? And, um, you know, does it need to happen? Or, do you know, if anybody feels like maybe this isn't being thought through well enough or, uh, well, well, you know, hold on, pump the brakes, let's talk about this, let's have a discussion. You know, if you even try to take that point of view in our current time, it's like um, somehow that's offensive or, you know, uh, you know, dismissed as being exclusive. So he's kind of looking at that whole that whole thing and just kind of saying, oh, wait a minute, um, you know, just because the current is tends to be going in a certain way, that doesn't mean that we have to follow that way. And maybe we should take a step about and think about what we're trying to re redefine rather than just go with the flow of society. I, it's very difficult to try to sum up this whole book, but that kind of in broad strokes is what is what the book is about. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, it sounds to me like you did a pretty good job based on um, what I was able to find out. So like this is so just a couple of like broad disclaimers here. First of all, I didn't read the book, so I'm not going to be able to talk about it the way you could about the swerve. And I probably wouldn't have been able to do that anyway, because I, I don't truck in this type of nonfiction reading about our current moment uh, the way that you like to do, John. So I think, you know, for the most part, I might, I might do well to kind of let you do the talking here, you know, but I have, but, um, but when I was looking into it, both who the author is uh, Murray and um, just, just glancing even at the headlines, some of the reviews, I saw some of the stones that were being hurled at this guy, you know, from, for even like bringing up some of these topics, you know, I mean, it was right there on the headlines. I wrote down a couple of phrases, right wing diatribe fantasies of a right wing provocateur, I mean, the guy got killed by a lot of the major reviewers, as you right. would expect, because if you bring up any of this stuff and even suggest, I think, in a lot of cases that we take that step back and reconsider it. Uh, I mean, you're immediately in trouble with the um, with the current uh, zeitgeist or whatever. Um, not saying that, you know, that you're necessarily right or not right definitively to challenge it. But, you know, in my opinion, it makes sense to you know, considering all the consequences of what is being taken on in these redefinitions as you describe them, it might make sense to step back and think it over, you know? <laughs> so, um, but yeah. he got, he got creams, you know, I'm just like, I'm just reading just, just in Googling it and reading some of the reviews, um, you know, in the major outlets, he got killed by a lot of, a lot of reviewers, you know, responding to his, you know, his ideas. Yeah. And I want to say, it's very, this is very tricky. This book made a lot of sense to me and I thought it was really thought provoking and interesting, but it, Murray, I, I'm not a hardcore right winger. I'm not a hardcore conservative. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm independent politically. You know, I kind of, my Catholic faith tends to guide my ideology more than any label like Republican or Democrat or, and that's just the way it is with me. Um, but I feel the need to say that because Murray has been embraced by the political right um, 
you know, the, the, the interview shows that he tends to go on and get a warm reception, you know, are typically right wing. And I, and I personally don't want to identify strongly with the right wing or the left wing. I just thought his analysis of what's going on in this moment and the reasons that he gives and how he backs it up. And this book is jam packed with examples of people from influential and influential fields in our society. So that would be academics, Nobel prize winners, celebrities, you know, TV personalities, uh, maybe sports personalities, these types of people that for better or for worse, our society tends to listen to when they open their mouths. Um, if any of these people have challenged at all the current ideology, which is constantly evolving, but, you know, um, about gender, about race, about men and women, careers have been destroyed for just, you know, mentioning, you look at the case of, remember J.K. Rowling? You know, you know who that is, obviously. Yeah, I think uh, so. Heard of her somewhere. Best-selling writer, I think, on the planet right now. Tremendously influential because of that, because of the Harry Potter books. She made one comment about having questions about whether encouraging transgenderism in young people is the right thing to do. And I don't, I, I didn't follow it. I don't know exactly what she said, but she made one little comment and man, she was pilloried and she was crucified in the media over, over a number of weeks. I'm sure you saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm got murdered in ma yeah. mainstream media. Yes, and now her career isn't over, but that's because she's J.K. Rowling. You know, that's because she created Harry Potter. That's like Star Wars or that's like Lord of the Rings or, you know, that's or Marvel. That's never going away. So she's <laughs> for whatever reason, her creation has made her in a way untouchable. But man, she got killed in the media just for even. And it was just a personal expression of her it wasn't even a dogmatic experience. Just like, I'm not sure this is a great idea. And she almost got ran off, you know, the figurative stage. And right. that's what this book is responding to the quote unquote cancel culture that we're living in now, where if you express any kind of opinion that is against what the current zeitgeist is. And again, I have to emphasize it just, it's hard to pin that down because it's constantly changing. Uh, but if you speak out in any way against that, the, you know, quote, the mob will come after you. And that's, that's what, that's why the madness of crowds is the title. That's why he, and he, I think he does a brilliant job of emphasizing how the internet and social media has exasperated, you know, our crowd mobbing tendencies. And, uh, exasperated. That's the wrong word. Exacerbated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and we just live in this sort of a, cultural tinderbox right now where and he, he makes he's very keen to point out and he does so in a very interesting way that the current ideologies about you know gender fluidity or race or uh, male and female roles most of these ideologies they, they originated amongst a very small group of uh, I hate, this is an inflammatory word, but I don't know how else to call it. Radical thinkers in the academy, okay? Academics who have, you know, published their theories. And one of the points that 
Murray brings out, if nothing else, he describes how unbelievably, miraculously successful this ideolo- these ideologies that have been formed by a very small elite group of people have infiltrated most of society, the, the major media, large corporations. Look at, look at what you were mandated to do with your uh, email signature, right? Yeah. You work for a large, we won't name it, you work for a very large company, by all accounts a great company, very successful, but it was mandated that you, I don't know what the word, like signify in your email signature the pronouns that you want to be referred to as, right? Right, so, right, right. Even though my name would be John, I have to further say, well, my name is John and I want to be known as a he. Right. And, and that's just that's one example. But the point is, these ideologies began in a very small elite cells and it's and they've they've grown and they're now almost unquestionable. It's almost an orthodoxy that you can't question now in the corporate world, in the media for sure, in entertainment for sure, sports to some degree, and certainly and it's and it's starting to happen in more and more churches. So that all of a sudden you can't question these things publicly. Yeah. How did that happen? And one of the, one last point I want to make about what Murray says in this book, and he argues, I think very successfully, is that, by the way, we don't live under um, uh, dictatorship or, you know, tyrannical dictatorship where everything you publicly think or state has to fall in line with state ideology. That's not the case here. You know, we don't have that here. It'd be one thing if this were happening in Russia or North Korea where you're not allowed to speak against the state, but we don't have, we're not in that situation here. So he's pointing out, why can't we voice our disagreement? Why can't we have a rational discussion about whether this is a good idea or not? But increasingly that's not even possible to do because if you state, if you express the wrong opinion, you're literally run off the stage. Yeah. And, and you're canceled completely. You have no career anymore and you're never heard from again. And that's just, there's something profoundly wrong with that. Yeah. Well, I think that it seems to me that that's where things are going pretty quickly. And that seems to be what the, the, this writer is trying to say in the book, even though I didn't read it. I mean, I observed that in my own household, just in like small ways. Like if I say anything just in my house, a questioning, you know, something about gender politics or identity politics or something like that, my kids will dis- dismiss me immediately and just basically say, well, dad, you're old, you know, and you, and you don't understand. You're you know? And, um, and I'll, and, you know, I always end up kind of scratching my head and it's just because they're influenced every day by social media and the current culture and they, and they're being raised in such a way where you're like, well, this is the way it is. And there's, it's not even possible as you're saying to like even bring up, questioning it otherwise you know you're you're you know you're uh ripe for cancellation you know and i try to say in as gentle way as possible like you know i i can i can raise questions you know (laughs) you know and uh yeah but and then and i read somewhere about this book that one of the things that murray seems to be doing is um 
or seems to be suggesting is that if if you were to, I don't know if this is accurate, but if you were to group all these categories under one term, like I guess identity politics or identity, identity, whatever, uh, meaning both race, gender, and, uh, you know, um, uh, sexual orientation. Yeah. Um, what he seems to be saying is that these things have all been weaponized in, in our society. So they're like, they're, they're brought around like weapons, you know? And if you, and if you're, you know, going against it, you know, these weapons will go off on you like they did with JK Rowling. And like you said, JK Rowling, JK Rowling. So she could sustain the unbelievable hit, you know, that she took, you know, for even bringing up this personal comment, but like, you know, you or I could not like, me at my company i can't i couldn't like raise my hand because i don't want to put pronouns on my email signature you know i'd be run out you know it could be grounds for, it could be grounds for firing yeah and i and i'm i'm like i'm like you i would say the same thing you did i mean i i might i i sort of feel a little bit more comfortable with conservative politics maybe even a little more than you do but i don't want to align myself with the hard right wing i don't feel like that and i and i i I think we are raised in a certain way not to close out people's voices and, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to close out or turn my closed ear to what people have to say about things like this, you know, and uh, I can learn as much as anyone. So I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, associate myself necessarily with the, the far right or people who don't want to listen to this either. But, you know, I did, I had to say one of the questions I wrote down, John was like, you know, and this is kind of the, maybe even the heart of what I wanted to ask about this, but we're sort of talking about it already is, you know, like, do you have to go along with all of these, um, all of these uh, new definitions or new ideas being floated out? Or do you think there's any way even today, this moment, not like five years from now, can you defend like a more traditional outlook or is it just too, or we already passed that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there's what I think, and then there's what maybe Murray thinks. But um, yeah. I, I of course don't think so. I don't think I don't think it's too late. I think we not only can we, but we must. <laughs> in my opinion, uh, I, don't, I hate to say we because I, you know, I just mean we as a people. I don't mean any tribe or particular ideology here. But right. I think you know. Behind all of this, one of the, and this is, you know, getting at, some people might say, well, why would you read a book like that? It's too controversial. Just stay away from those lightning rods. And one of the reasons why, for me, is that behind all of this, you know, what we're, you know, what we're really losing in our culture right now and in our society, you know, um, which is increasingly secular and increasingly polarized and fueled by the internet, which as Murray points out and many other people have just exacerbates, you know, the mob mentality and running people off the stage mm-hmm. and gives a, a, a platform to just hurl vitriol at each other without, you know, having to face people face to face in this whole, you know, stew, what we're losing is the capacity for rational argument. And mm-hmm. to me, that is a that's a catastrophe, and um, uh, another writer that I, yeah, 
the just the whole idea that you can agree, you can disagree, and you can calmly and rationally express why you disagree, and let's have a discussion. Like, uh, you know, I'm stealing from Alan Keyes, who's years ago, but he would in the in the debate, he uh, oh, who was it? He I can't remember some one of the philosophers. He brings up and he says, you know, let let us a quote from one of the ancient philosophers who says, let us reason together. You know, why can't we do that? But we should be able to do that. And I think it's very important that we defend the right to do that and even exemplify doing that, you know, the way Chesterton did, you know, let's have a rational discussion. Let's outline the ways we disagree and let's try to find common ground, but you can't do that. And that's part of Murray's point. You can't do that when this when in this society where, you know, there's inc- increasingly sort of a, an orthodoxy that you have to adhere to or you run off the stage. You yeah, know? you can't you can't shout that in the face of a mob. Right. Or you're what if, if you went back to your company and said very calmly and rationally, I I would really like to discuss this. I I have a problem with it. I would like to articulate my reasons. Would they listen to you? Or would they say fall in line? I yeah. I don't know, <laughs> but you know. So that's that's one reason. Uh, I certainly think it doesn't have to go this way, and I think that's part of Murray's point. You know, with the the madness of crowds, it's the, you know, and and I think it's worth noting. Well, first of all, I forgot to say this before. Murray's writing this book, by the way. It's divided into four sections, and in which he takes on, and it's very, it's a very provocative book. So it's, you know, there are four sections of the book. One is called gay, one is called women, one is called race, and one, and the fourth is called trans. So, you know, just with headers like like that, you're already getting into the, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're sticking your neck out for sure. There are third rails everywhere. But it's important to note that Murray himself is a gay man. So yeah, I was going to bring that book. up too. Yeah, and that's why is that's only worth bringing up because, you know, he has obviously as a homosexual man, he has a vested interest in things like gay rights and equal, marriage equality, for example. Right. But so he's making the point that once, you know, marriage equality and gay rights were achieved a long time ago, decades ago. And of course, there are lingering, you know, uh, uh, prejudices and that's something and that's important in all these areas there there's lingering sexism there's lingering racism for sure we've all seen that um unfortunately there's lingering you know uh discrimination of gay people he's not saying that that has gone away but the victory quote-unquote of gay marriage and gay rights happened a long time ago but what he's saying is now there's this tendency in in people to, he brings up this example, I'm going to butcher it, but there's a, there's a syndrome that some academic named, it's like the St. George syndrome that St. George traditionally slayed the dragon in England. That's what he's known for. But once you slay the dragon, you have to find other dragons to fight. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's saying that it, it can't be left alone there. We, they have to find the next crusade, you know, uh, once gay marriage is, is is achieved, what's what's the next thing, you know, front that we can fight on? And, and he's just saying there's a madness to this, always having, you know, crusades to, to fight. Um, but to get back to your question, you know, I think it's important to note, he actually ends the book on a hopeful note. 
because essentially what he's saying is, so think, for example, of, I know I'm bouncing all over the place, but did you hear about the 1619 pro- project for the New York Times? Mm, no, I don't think so. They had a throughout the whole year, I think it was, maybe it started last year, but throughout the whole year, they've had this series of articles that's been running. Essentially, the project is American history is all wrong and we need to redefine, we need to retell the story from the perspective of indigenous people and, you know, different races and whatnot. And there's a lot of value in that idea, but the way the New York Times is doing it, all of American history we've learned is garbage. Throw it all away. Mm -hmm. You know, Sounds about yeah. all that. Just throw it all away. That we got it. We need a reboot, and so the New York Times is going to take it on themselves, hopefully, to give us that reboot and to tell the story the right way. <laughs> well, Douglas Murray says at the end of this book, he says, "Look, at the bottom line, you know, if it becomes a competition between people who believe that America is the greatest evil the world has ever seen, and people who believe that there's still promise." And potential. And America was a great idea. Yes, it's very flawed, but America is and was a great idea. And there's still tons of potential and promise there. If it's those two views, Murray saying, I'm very hopeful that the latter one will will win. That the absurdity of saying that America is the greatest evil that ever happened on the face of the planet Earth will not prevail. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, some of the rhetoric goes that far. Like America is essentially evil, just like religion. All yeah. religions are evil because they impose a truth claim, and that's evil, and that's right. racist. And then you just wipe away all religion. You know, going back to the swerve a little bit. You know, right. it's inherently right. inherently evil. Well, that's ridiculous, in my opinion. And the idea that America is inherently evil is also a ridiculous idea. And so. He's saying if it's if it comes down to those two positions, I can't believe that that's going to win out over the potential and promise of America. You know, so I don't know. I, we're bouncing all over the place, but I, I, I thought I felt like this book was a, was a really important one because it brings up a lot of so many questions and examples of the way things are going in our society right now that deserve to be questioned. And this idea, like you said before. There's a massive movement going on that went from the academic academic circles and it's going out like a like a blast, you know, uh, radius. It's going out. But you don't have to follow it. You can stand up for rational argument. You can stand up for discussion. You can, you know, you don't have to just go along with the stream. And I and it, it saddens me that what's happening in your house and it, it's not just your house. I don't mean your house, but because I love the people in your house. But. You know, this, the younger, what I mean is the younger generations. I see it in my own kids too. And it's just, these ideologies are unquestioned. Yeah. We need to understand where they came from. We need to understand that they're not the only choice that we can make. And that, you know, like, especially in the trans section, Douglas Murray says, he questions very openly whether it's a good idea to try to impose the idea that you can change your gender on kids who are under 10 years old. And how this can be destructive. But just the idea that that can be destructive is will get you run off the stage. But he's yeah. saying, is this a good idea? And I, I fear that younger people are growing up just 
swallowing this notion that that's a good idea without thinking about it, without discussing it. Yeah. And I, therein lies the value of this book to me is just questioning all of that. Yeah, that's the scary part about it to me is that just you can't, you know, you can no longer bring any of these things into question. You know, like you can't even bring it up as something to discuss. That's that's the, the scary part about it to me, you know. Right. But I, I think we, you know, and I'm I'm not talking about your personal situation and I'll talk to myself, but it, it, the obligation is on me to, you know, even to, to my own kids or to young people that I encounter to say, whoa, 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 there is another, you don't have to just, you, you have to think about what you're just ingesting, you know, and you have to, I think we're obligated to share what we've learned and, you know, whatever wisdom we have and not just, obviously not just go along with what the internet and what, you know, mass media is feeding us because it's not thought through. It's just, you know, picked up and distributed. Yeah, yeah. So that's true. Yeah, just with the speed of the current, you know, the speed of current life, you know, like it's just this stuff gets just kind of whisked at you or through you or whatever. And, you know, you uh, pick up on it or, or, or if you don't, you'll just get sort of left behind in the dust, you know. And it's not minor stuff either. It's dangerous stuff. It's important. Like like Murray gives the example of uh, a young person said to him, "We've never, as a country, addressed the risk the the issue. We've never, as a country, addressed the issue of slavery." And he's like, "Wait, have have you heard of the Civil War? What was that about? <laughs> have you heard of the Emancipation Proclamation? How about the Civil Rights Movement? You know." He's not saying we got everything right, but to say that it's never been addressed at all is a ridiculous statement. Yeah, yeah, right. But it was unquestioned by this young person, and that's what's dangerous, and that's what's worth thinking about, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree. This book is a tinderbox. It, you know, it's get me in trouble just you know recommending it, but. I do recommend it. I thought I found it very thought provoking. You know, I try to stay away from the labels of right and left, Republican and Democrat. And I try to listen to rational argument and have it inform what I think about. And these issues issues are incredibly important and have, you know, unbelievably profound ramifications for all of society and certainly the young people that I'm raising and you're, you know, so to me, that's that makes it worth reading about. Yeah, when you get to, when you begin to grasp a sense of how the long and far the the results or the consequences of making changes like this can reach, then you sort of realize that you there's an obligation there, as you're saying, to at least say, let's at least you know stop and discuss. But you know, like you said, and like it seems like the book's pointing out, it's it's harder and harder to even make that suggestion. You know, and that's the part that's really that's really going to be a challenge going forward. You know, like you can't if you can't have I mean, questions like this and topics like this always make me think of our dad, John, you know, yeah, whose favorite word was dialogue, you know. Yeah. yeah. And he was very interested, like uh, certainly all the time that you and I knew him and particularly in the last 10 years of his life, he was very interested in having dialogues with people. 
you know, and he wanted to listen to what people had to say on the other side of wherever he was. Mm-hmm. But if you won't even come to the table, you know, or if you won't even entertain somebody saying, well, this is my point of view and it sits directly opposite from yours, then you can't, there's no progress, you know, and all the right. famous people who were, um, you know, advocated for uh, rational discourse and nonviolence, for, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King and Gandhi and all the people of that nature, you know, make the same argument. But if you can't even sit down, then you're not going to go anywhere. Yep. That, that's right. Very well said. And um, yeah, it's like the paradox, you know, and we can, we can wrap it up, but like you take uh, the fight for racial equality and, and um, civil rights, the irony that so many of those uh, crusaders for civil rights, like Dr. Martin Luther King and Lewis and so many others in this country and in other countries came from a, came from a standpoint of religious faith, you know, often mm-hmm. Christianity, but not that very faith is now among the, the ideologies that is repressed and questioned as being hateful, yet it helped to achieve the civil rights that are so revered now, rightly so, you know, and so uh, celebrated. But there's such an irony there, you know, that that's part of what helped us get to that point, but, but that part of it is now to be excised from the record, you know, just, yeah. uh, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, they're crazy times, but anyway, those are, those are two nonfiction books that we both read and got a lot out of, or we didn't, you didn't read that one, but um, that we've read each of us got a lot out of this year. Very thought provoking. Hopefully this, this discussion has been somewhat thought provoking. And um, again, I think it's a good idea to just have a second part of this so that we can give our fiction choices uh, the justice that they deserve and have another good discussion about them. Yeah, I agree. And that's going to be a good one also. So we've got, we've got some interesting titles lined up for that. So um, yeah, I don't know. Do we break? Yeah, I think we should break, come back and and talk briefly about what's next and then, um, you know, wrap up the show. Okay. Well, as we're rounding third base, heading for home, you know, as we always do, we talk about what may be next on our reading agendas. Um, and that's a little bit fluid for me right now for reasons I'll, I'll get into in a second. But um, you have anything right now beyond a portrait of the artist of the as a young man that you're looking at, dude, or is that a little bit too early? Uh, short answer is no. I don't I have no idea what I'm going to read next, to be honest. I forgot to think about it in the context of our podcast here, but it's, it's going to be light. I'm going to swerve, uh, you know, to use a word we've brought up today. I'm going to swerve in a wildly different direction. So I just read a really huge historical novel that takes a lot of, you know, it's a very readable book, but it takes a lot of time and effort. And now I'm reading James Joyce, which is like, you know, not exactly popcorn uh, reading. So, <laughs> you know me, I mean, I could see myself going to Uncle Steve or something, you know, something light. It's going to be a, a fun read, but I'm not sure what it is quite yet. Um, so 
What's yours? Cool. Well, and don't forget, we got the Christmas exchange coming up. So, you know, yep. keep an eye out for that. If we got, uh, you know, we're, we're each experiencing trouble in the, uh, with the postal service right now. So maybe our, our gifts for each other will never get there. Who knows? Right. Um, so for me, it's kind of, it's a little, not quite a hundred percent defined either, but I'll, I'll just give a, a brief teaser and we'll get into this more probably in the next episode. But uh, Jude and I have been talking and, and we're dancing around the idea of having uh, some kind of discussion of coming about short fiction, short stories. But we've talked about that and we'll, you know, uh, in the future, we'll talk more about why that's why we want to do that. Um, but along with some of those discussions we've been having, quote unquote, off air, dude, I think when I get done with the uh, Barbara Ehrenreich um, nickel and dime book, uh, I think I'm going to go back and read one of my favorite short story collections. And there's, a, I say one of them because there's a number of candidates for that. And I don't want to get into those right now because we're going to talk about some of our favorite short story collections, I think in an upcoming episode, but mm -hmm. uh, you could, if you think about it, a couple of them may bubble up in your mind and I might grab one of those volumes and reread it kind of in preparation for that future discussion. So I think that may be upcoming for me. Yeah, that's a good idea. I might keep that in mind. I might do something similar, you know? Yeah. There's a couple, you know, really, you know, revered at least by us short story collections that i've only read once and uh i think it would be a good idea to go back and tackle them again so i mm. think i'm going to do that next not sure which one but that'll that's a little teaser for you all it'll come out in a later episode and um well we've already talked about you know now uh we made a decision on air here our next episode what that's going to be about we're going to talk about our favorite uh fiction selections that we read in 2020. And so we'll have another discussion like this and talk about those. So uh, tune in for that. We're not going to tell you exactly what those are. You're going to have to tune into episode 20 to find that out. Yep. And then beyond that, like I said, we have a, we're cooking on an idea for the episode to come after that. But uh, I think we should wait until we have a firmer idea of what that's going to be before we tease it. Yeah, and that uh, the next episode, episode twenty though, might be the first of the twenty twenty one. I believe. I think we're going to stretch into the new year, so this is going to wrap it up for twenty twenty, and then we'll start the new year talking about what our favorite fiction books were from everyone's favorite year, twenty twenty, which will be rapidly receding into history at that point. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably the way it's going to go down, but we'll see. Um, and I think that's going to do it, unless you have anything else you want to say. Nope, um, we, we got a relatively short episode here <laughs> based on our recent performance, but um, you know, lots of good discussion, and I think we, I think you're right, you know, to give to give time to those two nonfiction books, and then we'll have. I know we're going to have a media discussion around the fiction books as well because uh, those are, you know, I know what the titles are, and they're going to they're going to veer, veer wildly in different directions, so it's going to be good. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I just want to say, that, you know, that I know what you're choosing for your fiction and, and um, I'm looking forward to dig into, digging into that particular writer. I know you've been curious because I've since uh, we first started talking about him, I've been able to ingest a little bit of his work myself. So we're going to have that discussion and it's going to be good. I, I'm looking forward to digging into that when you talk about your picks. So, yeah, yeah. And vice versa. We're going to have we're going to have good discussion about your the favorite also. So it's going to be. Tune in for that. Well, 
that should do it for this episode, episode 19. Again, um, really just want to say thank you for everyone who's listened to us in the year 2020. It's been awesome fun for us to do this show, and we've gotten great feedback along the way and a steadily growing listenership. We appreciate each and every one of you who have jumped on board, and we're going to, you know, we're committed to doing our very best to keeping this show going and keeping and, and keeping it uh, improving as we go forward into 2021. So thank you all for listening. Jude, thanks for joining me today. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. All right. Thank you, John. And thank you to all the listeners. Uh, best wishes for the new year. <laughs>